0: I'm glad to be with you. Uh, We are nearing the end of our study in the book of Galatians. We've got today, and Lord willing, next Sunday. So, after that, uh, we'll move back into Job that we left probably a year ago or so. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's first final warning in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10 where the Apostle described what happens when believers sow to their flesh and, uh, and then sow to the Spirit. Uh, if they sow to their flesh by adding works of the law for justification, you know we're justified by faith alone, that's a great Reformation doctrine and a biblical doctrine, but if they sow to the flesh by adding works of the law for justification or by engaging in other fleshly sinful activities like sexual immorality, Paul says in the text that they will reap corruption. They will reap corruption. And the kind of corruption they will reap is that the experiential quality of their Christian life will go from better to worse, and they will at some point even lose the joy of their salvation. So when a Christian engages in fleshly sinful things, it degrades and diminishes the quality of their Christian walk in life. And this is exactly what he talks about. And then if a Christian sows to the Spirit, they are going to reap eternal life, which Paul says, but that has to do with with the experiential quality of their Christian life being very high them having the joy of their salvation, them having the fruit of the Spirit. And when a Christian doesn't have the fruit of the Spirit in their life because they sow to the flesh, uh, their existence is really no better than that of an unbeliever. And so this is what Paul presents in the previous section. And I thought it was a a great text in Time and the Word that we had last Sunday. Most of this epistle to the Galatians is spent exposing and condemning the false teachings of the Judaizers. Remember, they were the false teachers that were going around to the churches in Galatia and in other places, and they were bringing in works of the law for justification. And, and this group of men, they claimed to be the real deal. They claimed to be the genuine article. They were claiming that not only were they the, the truest kind of Christian, but they were authorized teachers and leaders and nobody should listen to the Apostle Paul because he wasn't as good as them. And so they would teach and say they were the real deal. Uh, They would say that they were sincere lovers of God. They were sincere lovers of God's law. Uh, They would say, would have been saying that they were truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. And that's why they were out preaching their twisted version of the gospel. Well, we love other people and We need to preach our gospel because we want to see them get saved. They would have said all of these things. These are the things that they represented. Now, in the next section, however, Paul takes a moment to expose and condemn the Judaizers' wrong motives. He literally pulls back the thin veil of their piety to expose and condemn their true selves. So they've been saying they're the genuine article, but Paul is now going to show how they are not by showing their false, wrong motives. Uh, If you'd be so kind as to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 6, we'll be focused on verses 11 through 13. This will be another four-point sermon, but this time I have no letters for you, no E's, T's, B's, or Z's, just four points. And... uh, We need to uh, pray and then after we pray we need to look at verse 11 uh, firstly before we can actually get to our points in verses 12 and 13. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and ask the Lord for help. Father, we humble ourselves once again and we first of all thank You for Your kind grace and goodness to us and how You've dispensed grace to us through the singing and call to worship and reading of Your Word and the prayers and things that have already been offered and These are all expressions of your grace to us and and our expressions of worship to you. And now you show us the grace of teaching, admonition, exhortation, um, sanctification through your word. Thank you for this means of grace and we pray that we humble ourselves now and pay close attention to your word and that we wouldn't be just mere hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that you bring conviction and sanctification. And uh, if there be anyone here who does not have a saving relationship with Jesus, uh, we pray that you would save them. It's only you that can do that. It's only you that can make Christians. We don't make ourselves Christians. You make Christians. You're making a people for yourself from among the people of the world. And and we pray that you would uh, even do that today here. And so uh, may we submit ourselves to you. May we listen and pay attention May we grow in the word, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's pick up where we left off last Sunday, verse 11. Paul says this next, and and this is a really, really interesting line. It kind of seems out of place, but you'll find that it's perfectly in place. He says this, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. That is an interesting thing to say near the end of his letter or in any epistle or any letter. And, And what he's doing here before he enters into exposing the wrong motives of these Judaizers is he's calling attention to his writing style, to his writing technique. He's telling the Galatians to take notice of the large letters that he was writing with his own hand. Now, the exact purpose and meaning of the statement is a, is a little difficult to nail down, especially when it seems so random and out of place. Um, but I think that we can shed some light on what he was saying here. And the first thing that we need to notice is that he calls attention to the fact that he's writing with his own hand. Now, now you need to understand something. This was a bit uncommon in that day. It wasn't that people didn't write their own letters, but what they did was they usually used a scribe and they dictated to the scribe what they wanted written. And Paul and even the Apostle Peter, they utilized dictation and scribes uh, that wrote things down for them. They would stand there and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, they would say what they want written, and then the scribe with a quill and an inkwell would you know, and parchment paper would literally write out word for word, what they were saying. This was a very common thing in that day. We typically just hop on our computer or laptop and type out whatever it is that we want to write, but back then it was a little different. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with John Mark. Uh, He is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He served as Peter's scribe from time to time. Uh, He did Record the synoptic gospel that bears his name, and there is evidence and very strong evidence throughout that entire gospel that that shows that Peter was the actual source of its content. So, when you think of the gospel of Mark, that's really Peter sharing with Mark his experience as he toured throughout Israel with Jesus, and Mark is recording it. So, John Mark, or Mark, was a scribe type of figure. Uh, The early church father, Papias, he maintained that the gospel of Mark was simply a collection of Peter's discourses as this information was received and recalled by Mark. And so there's an early church father that we don't put all our stock in those guys, but sometimes the things that they were saying were very historically accurate. Peter also used a disciple by the name of Silvanus uh, to record letters for him. In 1 Peter 5.12 it says, by Silvanus a faithful brother as I regard him I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that uh, this is the true grace of God go ahead and stand firm in it so right there in in Peter's first epistle he acknowledges who, the name and identifies the name of his own scribe Silvanus so Peter's reciting and Silvanus is writing down at the end of Paul's letter To the Romans. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 22. Who was Tertius? He is the scribe who wrote down Romans for Paul, as Paul dictated to him what to write. Uh, The one thing Paul always did, however, was that he personally wrote out a statement or two with his own hand. And then he always signed his own letters. So so the way that Paul put his letters together in in a general sense was that he would recite or he would say to a scribe what he wants written down, and then toward the very end he would say something like, I've written this with my own hand, and then he would sign his own name. But in actuality, he had a scribe that was writing for him. In fact, uh, he called this, this practice of dictation and then signing his own name, he He called this the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, 2 Thessalonians 3.17. Now, we actually see dictations and scribes in the Old Testament as well. Jeremiah used a scribe named Baruch. Uh, It says, then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him—that's Jeremiah thirty-six four. So when you read Jeremiah, you're you're reading whatever the Holy Spirit inspired him to say, but it's coming through the pen of a guy named Baruch. And then, of course, with Isaiah, who's another one of the major prophets, he used quote unquote disciples to record some of his speeches and writings. He says. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, Isaiah 8, 16. When, now, now Now you have to wonder here, so you've got all this dictation and all of this recording going down, then you've got usually the signature going at the end or whatever, uh, and this is exactly what Paul did. So we have to ask the question, why would Paul break precedent to personally write out every word of this letter to the Galatians? Because that's exactly what he's saying he did. This did not come through a scribe. This did not come through dictation. He sat down and wrote this out himself. And so why why would he break tradition or precedent and do this? I, I think one word sums up why. Urgency. Urgency. You need to understand, and we've learned this as we've studied the letter, that the danger in Galatia was imminent. It was there. It was present right you have the Judaizers who are going from church to church throughout Galatia who are literally spreading a false gospel of works they are saying that believing in Jesus is not enough you better add works of the law in particular if you're male you better add circumcision these men are going around tainting these churches with this false gospel and so when Paul hears the news he doesn't have time to summons a scribe. He doesn't want to spend the time to do dictation because whenever you do that, you have to have a lot of interaction with your scribe. You go back and forth. You describe things. The scribe even sit and makes suggestions about the way you've worded something or whatever. It's a process when you do dictation. And Paul, I think, because of the urgency and the danger that was imminent, he just I got to sit down and write this out myself. I mean, when he heard this news, he wasted no time. He sat down at his desk, he took his quill in hand, he opened his inkwell, he laid out some parchment paper, and he wrote this letter in one shot. Probably wrote the whole thing inside of 15 to 20 minutes. It's taken us since, what, July to study it? So this took only a few moments for him to write. And then when he was finished writing it out, He then contacted a messenger, some faithful brother or sister in the church, and said, I need you to take this letter. He sealed it. I need you to take this letter to the churches in Galatia. And that's what happened. Now, another thing that's interesting, not only does he write this in his own hand, but he says that he used large letters instead of normal-sized letters. Well, we would call this all-caps. He's literally writing in all Greek uppercase, and it it makes you wonder why he's doing that, and why, why would he write everything out in big, block, bulky lettering, right? That's not typically the way that they would write letters back then. They would use Greek cursive, which is beautiful. You don't write in signage language, and he does that here, and it it's an interesting phenomenon. Why would he do that? Well, some say it's because of his poor eyesight. And in order for him to see what he's writing, he has to write big, bold letters. Uh, Rumor has it that Paul contracted malaria, which damaged his eyes during the first part of his first missionary journey. And he was actually sick when he arrived in Galatia. He talks about that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. He may have been sick with malaria. And if you let malaria go, and I don't know how you dealt with malaria in the first century. You didn't have the kinds of medicines and things that you have today. You had to ride it out, ride out the fevers and everything. But if you let it go for any length of time, you don't treat it quickly, it destroys the uh, cones and rods in your eyes and you lose your eyesight. Uh, One of the number one causes of blindness in third world nations is malaria-induced blindness. Um, And his... Sickness was undoubtedly eye related because he commended the Galatians for their compassion and willingness to give them their own eyes so that he could see better. Chapter 4, verse 15. So he may have had malaria, but I think undoubtedly he had some sort of eye problem. And he might have used these large letters so he could see what he's writing because of this poor eyesight. And I think that's a legitimate thing. I think it's a combination of the things I'll give you. But another idea is that um, another potential reason would be importance. Remember, we have urgency, and then we have importance. It could be a matter of importance. Uh, People tend to use larger letters, um, all caps, when emphasizing an important point. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, well, whenever I want to yell at somebody through a text, I use all caps. And I'm like, is that why there's some people who write me and the entire message is all caps? Probably, Phil. Oh, OK, great. So I've got people that are ticked off at me. I think that we tend to go to the all caps or larger letters when we're trying to emphasize something. Like, who hasn't highlighted a section and then and you know, made it bold or italicized it? I think that we do that because we're trying to stress the importance of what we're saying in that moment. And maybe it is textual yelling or email yelling, I don't know. But we tend to use all uppercase when we're trying to emphasize something of higher importance, right? We want to draw that person's attention to that particular word or sentence. And I think that that could have been going on here. Undoubtedly, I think it's going on here Or, or, you know, I mean, why why do we do this ourselves? We're trying to emphasize, or maybe we are getting heated and yelling at people, or maybe it's simply because we accidentally hit the caps lock and we're too lazy to go back. That's happened. Like, well, I can't believe I just typed out this entire paragraph in all caps. Well, I'm not going to change it because you have to retype. We use all caps to draw special attention and stress importance. Paul was dealing with Three of the most important issues that churches often face, false teachers, false gospels, and apostasy, right? Walking away from orthodoxy, walking away from the doctrines of the Bible. It makes total sense for him to write this epistle in large Greek letters, all caps. And this was actually a writing style in that day. It's called Uncial Script, U-N-C-I-A-L. I don't even know what the word means. I didn't do you know, a word search on it, but this is unseal script that he's using. It's, it's um, a text that was used in Greek signage and, and these sorts of things, and he's using unseal. And the thing that, again, it's, it's not a pretty kind of fluid Greek text. It's not like the cursive. It's not pretty or flowing. It's big, blocky, and bold. Now, just imagine with me that this entire letter was written like this, which probably wouldn't have been really fun to read. I mean, if we had to read six chapters in all caps, I mean, at some point, would you be like, really? Yeah, he wrote the whole thing in unsealed script. It's big. It's bulky. It's for signage. And I think that this is probably why he used it. The urgency, the importance, he's writing it out, not just because of his eyesight, but because of its importance. He wants these people to read every word. Uh, they're, They're very sanctification, and in some instances here, their own salvation rests upon what he's writing. And That might have been one of the reasons why he did it. And also in verse 12a, he describes the Judaizers' obsession with making a good showing in the flesh. Notice that? This tells us that These Judaizers were very, very concerned with temporal things like physical appearance, with education, intelligence, eloquence, verbal communication, writing skill, writing style. These men were obsessed with these sorts of things, and Paul may have deliberately chose to write in the ugliest text of that day, just just to put a jab on these guys who would have said, why is it this clown caveman writing in Greek cursive? He may have written this letter, this entire letter, in in, in the uncommon, ugly script, just to prove a point to the Judaizers who were obsessed in everything visual and in making a good showing in the flesh. One of the things that Paul makes clear in his epistles is that the gospel itself is not dependent on human skill it's not dependent on human persuasion right he told the corinthians this he said when i came to you brothers i did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of god with lofty speech or wisdom for i decided to know nothing among you among you except jesus christ and him crucified first corinthians 2 1 and 2 now if the Judaizers had put together some kind of letter like this they would have utilized the techniques and the penmanship and the fancy script of all the best and most popular philosophers of their day. Why? Because they wanted others to think they were educated. They wanted people to think they were skilled. They wanted people to think they were authorized, well-cultured. You know, hey, we, we, you know, we all went to Harvard. They had that kind of mentality. And Paul, on the other hand, had zero interest in any sort of showing off he, he was not interested in showing off in the flesh. He wasn't interested in personal gain or announcing or showing his intelligence. And to be quite honest with you, Paul would probably disagree, but of, of all the spirit-filled authors of Scripture, he's the man. He is the man. I mean, he's amazing with the way he writes and with the way God works through him, I to me, he's like second to Christ. I mean, Christ is is God and King and, and all this, but, but right next to him, of all the New Testament authors especially, it, it would be Paul. We spend our whole lives studying Paul's epistles and letters, and he was, he was a brilliant, brilliant man, and yet he condemned anything like that. He just it's not about that. The gospel doesn't need for you to be brilliant. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be able to write well. And since the Judaizers were obsessed with those worldly things, Paul writes in ugly, unseal. I think that's why. I think those are all the reasons. The sight, the the getting a jab in on these, you know, temporally obsessed false teachers. Um, the urgency, the importance of what he's writing. You put it all together, and I think you've got an awesome combination. What a loaded verse, verse 11, right? Who would have known? Who would think? Who would think? And I think that when the Judaizers, because I know they read this letter when it went out, I think that as soon as they saw the unsealed script, they were like, this guy's a baboon. This guy's a caveman. Why would he write in signage language? They probably just at that point just divorce themselves from the letter altogether and probably were telling the other Galatians, you might as well crumple this up and throw it away because no one of, of any kind of real spiritual skill or anything would write in signage lettering. That's probably what happened. Now this brings us to our first point, right? We have our first point or our first wrong Motive, and that is this: number one, the Judaizers were motivated by a desire for admiration. We see this in verse twelve a. They were all about getting admiration, acceptance, and admiration from others. That's what people who perform in their flesh—that's what they're after. And these guys were obsessed with being admired by others. Uh, The text says it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, Paul speaking to the Galatians. Look, they they just want you to get circumcised so that they can, in a sense, make a good showing in the flesh. This is what he's saying. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the Judaizers, they're not actually truly religious, nor are they truly concerned about the souls of men. All they were interested in is what? Making a good showing in the flesh, which has to do with performing outwardly so that people will admire them. This is a a loaded double-barrel shotgun blast right here with what Paul says. I mean, the Judaizers already hated him, but I'm telling you, they they really liked him a lot after this. And and you know who, who has something in common with the Judaizers is the Pharisees. You remember, those are the false teachers of the day that that basically they were the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious elite who followed Jesus around and, 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 and criticized him and tried to trap him and, and tried to arrest him, and they just, they just harassed him for three years, three and a half years or so. They're just like the Judaizers. Uh, uh, Matthew 6, 5 says, and this is Jesus speaking of them, uh, speaking of the Pharisees, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. The Pharisees had, uh, they didn't have internal religion, they had exterior religion, and they put on a show for people. And they wanted people, they put on all this activity to make themselves look very, very religious and very professional. Eh, but in the end, they, they had nothing going on on the inside, and they were just really about getting admired. Now, the Judaizers were not known for praying in the synagogues or, you know, praying on the street corners like the Pharisees where the Judaizers weren't like them at all in that regard. They were known for persuading Gentiles to be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses, which was really like at the end of the day just gaining another Jewish proselyte or convert. The Judaizers were not Christians per se, they claimed to be, but they were really just interested in converting more and more Gentiles to Judaism. They were trying to bring them in under the Jewish religion. And every time the Judaizers convinced a Gentile to be circumcised, the surrounding Jewish community would admire them for all of their fantastic, successful evangelistic work. Now, this is what the Judaizers were actually after. They wanted accolades. They wanted notoriety. They wanted fame. They wanted admiration among the Jews. And when they forced Gentiles to be circumcised, that's exactly what they got. They got a hip, hip hooray every time they got a Gentile Christian to follow their perverted gospel way. And they also like to display their biblical acumen, their theological understanding, their personal piety. They like to display all these things in front of the Galatians to what? Gain admiration in all these churches. And these guys were the biggest show-offs and they put on, uh, I would say they put on an impressive show wherever they went. They were very convincing with all their exterior or outer behavior. I mean if you if you spent any time with them, you would be so impressed with everything that they're doing and saying and, and all of the piety and religious speech and they were very convincing. They, they were really, really good at putting on a show and they were really good at getting admiration from others. but in reality, they were nothing more than whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean on the inside, Matthew 23, 27. That is what Jesus says of the Pharisees and the Judaizers were almost identical to them in many ways. And I think that it's, we can make an important parallel for now and to us, Christians today sometimes and very often seek after admiration from others we do this it's it's a sad reality but we we try to do this and sometimes the reason why we try to do this is because of our upbringing maybe somebody in our family didn't love us well and maybe we maybe we don't understand the gospel and who we are in Christ and you know we're we're just we just want to gain the acceptance and admiration of others that's what we go after Christians do this all the time, and and sometimes the way they try to get this acceptance and admiration is through bragging about their giving. Believe it or not, there's believers out there that brag about their giving. Well, you, know, I gave thirty-two thousand dollars last year, and I, you know, they brag about their deeds. Uh, you know, look look at what I did here. There was a guy when I had Facebook prior to 2017 when I when I purged and got rid of it. There was a guy that I used to follow who was another DJ in the community, and I actually ended up just canceling my friendship to him and stopped following because every other day he would brag about something, some other religious thing that he did. Well, I went down and I fed the homeless today. Well, I, I, I went over and, and did this today. I was out at Love Modesto, you know, and all he ever did was just brag about all the things. And I, I would sit back and read it and go, what about not letting your left hand know what your right hand's doing? You you do realize that if you go out and serve the Lord and then you turn around and brag about it, you kind of disqualify yourself and lose any sort of credit or whatever you want to call it with the Lord. The minute you start bragging about what you're doing, it exposes your true motive. People who serve the Lord, you know, in, in in real deeds with a real heart of love for the Lord, they don't talk about what they're doing. But of course, what is Facebook? It's narcissism. It's all people want to do on there is talk about everything they're doing or not doing and, you know, attack everyone for having different views. I got tired of getting attacked for the pizza I like. And I, what an idiot for putting pictures of the pizza I was eating on there. And all of a sudden it's like, Mountain Mike's is lame. You're stupid. Round table all the way, bro. It's like, what are we doing here? This is the stupidest thing in the world. They're changing the name of it, by the way, to like Meta or something. I don't know. Get out of there. It's worthless. But... Christians will seek admiration by bragging about what they're doing, by bragging about their giving, by bragging about their positions at work or positions in the church. Hey, by the way, I was just made an elder. Uh, they'll seek admiration and acceptance through bragging about their possessions, about skill, anything and everything. They'll utilize anything and everything. Uh, they'll put their biblical acumen, their biblical knowledge, their theological understanding, their, their own personal piety, they'll put these things on display for others to see. In some instances, these Christian parents will parade around their little well-behaved, perfectly groomed, sharply dressed little children like little dogs at the Westminster show. I've seen it. Look at little Jimmy. He's a little angel. has a viper and diaper, ma'am. He just hasn't shown it yet. But they do this, that that basically because there's a hole that the gospel hasn't filled uh, or they're just prideful or whatever it is, that everything about them is about showing off and trying to gain acceptance and admiration. And I think we typically attribute this ungodly behavior to pride, right? We always say, well, it's just pride. And I think most of the time it is, but I think a lot of times it's not actual pride maybe it is but i think that it's insecurity that drives it some folks are so uncomfortable in their own skin they feel the need to brag and show off all the time you know if you talk about something that you got and you're not bragging you're just saying like hey man i uh you know i got i got a pretty awesome pair of boots i got some boots too they were a thousand dollars you're like okay mr boot man It's like, you know, the one-upping kind of thing, right? You know what drives that sometimes and most often? It's not just pride. It's insecurity. The thought of somebody else having something better than you. That can't be. That's called envy. Envy actually happens when somebody has something better than you and you basically hate them for that. And this, this happens all the time, and the sad thing is that these kind of prideful but really insecure people who are into bragging and showing off all the time and boasting, they mistakenly think that this kind of behavior is going to bring them acceptance and admiration, but it doesn't, because in our heart of hearts, we all know that no one likes a narcissist. The only people that like narcissists are narcissists. And this is narcissistic behavior driven by either pride or insecurity. This kind of behavior only brings criticism and it drives people further away. Pride or insecurity driven narcissism is horrifically unattractive. It really is. And i tell you what, and this, this is happening in, with Christians. They want this acceptance and their, this admiration and they show off and do these things but man, if they only understood their actual value and identity in Christ. I mean, that narcissistic Christian is a child of God. That is the highest, deepest, most profound identity. They have eternal security in Christ. You have everything you need. Somebody said it earlier. Right? I don't know if it was Cameron or Philip, but you have everything that you need in Christ, and and somehow there's a defect in this mind of this Christian that doesn't get that, and so they're insecure and they feel the need to show off. But if they just understood who they are in Christ, maybe if they would just keep their eyes fixed on the cross and the terrible price that Christ had to pay there for them, they would understand their value and identity, and then they would begin to release the insecurity and let go of the pride and stop Showing off and really making a mess of their own life and the lives of those that are around them. Why do we seek after admiration when we have the acceptance of the Father in Christ? I don't need to be admired by men. In fact, if you're someone who needs to be admired by other men and women, you may as well stick away, stay away from the gospel because the gospel is a stumbling block for those who are perishing. They'll hate you for the gospel. So if you want to be admired, don't, don't preach the gospel. In fact, I think a lot of Christians who want to be admired, they don't preach the gospel. They stay away from that stuff. Just need to understand here what Paul is saying. The Judaizers were not motivated by a sincere love for God. They were not motivated by a love for His law, nor were they truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. They were motivated by a desire, and it's a wrong desire, for admiration. Is that you? Repent of that. Turn away from it. Recognize your identity and value in Christ. Let's move to our second false motive. Number two. Number two. My voice cut out halfway. There's a number two. Probably need a little water. Need to water the lawn here. Number two. The Judaizers were motivated by a desire to avoid persecution. Twelve B, verse twelve B. This is another wrong motive of theirs. These false teachers were pushing circumcision on these Gentile brothers, not because of their theological understanding, not because of some sort of important religious conviction or because they actually loved God's law. It had to do with avoiding persecution. That's their M.O. here. Yeah, admiration, but also persecution avoidance, Every pious male Jew in Paul's day was zealously supportive of circumcision. Why? Because circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and all of Abraham's progeny, all future Jews, right? Genesis 17, 10 through 11. You had to be circumcised to be part of national Israel. And, and some Galatians were welcomed in by Jews as long as they were circumcised and went through a cleansing, a ceremonial cleansing ritual where they they would literally be baptized. There's there's a kind of baptism in the Old Testament for Gentiles, and this ceremonial baptism represented the washing away of their Gentileness. Literally, wiping away a a kind of identity that existed, wiping away or washing away the the sinfulness of being non-Jewish. That's what this represents. I would be so offended by that. I'd be like, I don't want your religion. And uh, Gentile Christians, however, though, were and still are. Because we're Gentile Christians, right? I don't have a Jewish background. Maybe you do. I'm not a Messianic uh, Christian. But Gentile Christians were and still are considered part of Israel through engrafting. You can read about this in Romans eleven seven. 7. The deal is that people like me do not believe that you have to be circumcised to be a Christian or to be added to Israel as as a people group in at least a spiritual sense. Uh, This inclusion, the the inclusion of Gentile Christians into the whole sort of Israelite scheme, um, it it basically is very offensive to the Jews to think that uncircumcised non-Jewish people could be added in or brought in. And in, in first century Christians, and I think second century Christians really in particular knew they were part of Israel. But if they talked about that, it got them in a lot of hot water because they weren't circumcised and they didn't have all the, the trappings and markings of Judaism. And a- another thing that really upset the Jews in Paul's day wasn't just the inclusion of Gentiles into Israel, it was the saviorhood and lordship and uh, kingship and deity of Jesus Christ, that really sent them spiraling. They hated Jesus. They murdered him on a cross. But the thing that really spun Jews in, in, in Paul's day out was the idea of Gentiles being added to Israel apart from circumcision. The circumcision thing was the biggest issue for, for first century Jews. It's just a weird thing to be so focused on. Now, if you wanted to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ, all you had to do as a Gentile Christian was just add circumcision. Just get circumcised and add that for your justification plus your faith, and you were pretty much good to go. That, that would get the Jewish people off your back if you started following some of the Mosaic law. Get them off your back. That's all you had to do to avoid persecution. And, and that's exactly what the Judaizers did, although I think they were already circumcised because they were Jewish, allegedly Jewish Christians. But what they did was they found a way to keep their Jewish peers off their back. And that was just to start touting circumcision. And that was to make Christians get, you know, non-circumcised Christians get circumcised. Any Christian who, who added circumcision to the law for justification as part of their faith and all that, any, any Christian who did that in Galatia or anywhere else, as soon as you did that, you were usually accepted by your Jewish neighbors, accepted by your Jewish peers, accepted by your Jewish contemporaries, or the Jews just left you alone altogether. They would just leave you alone altogether. So, so what Paul's saying is, is that the Judaizers kind of played the whole circumcision game to get other Jews off their back, because that's the thing that got them off their back. The Judaizers did not like persecution at all. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of it either. But they despised it to the point of total and absolute capitulation. If they had made any sacrifices on behalf of Christ in the beginning... And they took it all back when the heat of persecution got turned up. Uh, they were like the parable of the sower and the seed that fell on rocky ground. Uh, when they heard the word, they immediately received it with joy. But since they had no root in them, they only endured for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arose on account of the word, the gospel, immediately they fell away. Uh, Matthew thirteen twenty to 21. I think that passage right there that was spoken by Jesus before the Judaizers were around. I think that was almost prophetic, prophetic in describing who the Judaizers would be and what they would do. They despised persecution to the point of adding circumcision as a work of the law. They, they, even, uh, they, they, they hated persecution at an even higher level that caused them to kind of go beyond that. Uh, what they actually started doing was fighting against the actual gospel right? They developed a new version of the gospel, a false gospel, and they went around all the churches trying to lead actual Christians astray. So they not only bolstered circumcision to keep Jews off their back, they went around to take it to a higher level of acceptance and admiration from the Jews. They went around and preached a false gospel that included circumcision. And they led, they tried to lead other Christians astray. And quite frankly, every time they gained a convert. They didn't make that convert a truer Christian or an actual Jew or anything. They made that convert twice a child of hell as themselves. Matthew 23, 15. Remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of Galatians, anyone who adds anything to faith for justification is anathema, accursed. It's all faith or it's anathema. You believe in Jesus God considers you just, righteous and justified and that's it. It's all based on faith. The minute you add circumcision or any other work it's cursed. You've now departed the gospel. You've left it all. And the Judaizers departed everything right according to God according to His Word just to avoid persecution because they didn't like the way that felt. And you know what? There's a, parallel. There's a lot of Christians that are like that today. There are. Um, I, I don't if I'm going to be honest, I don't like persecution either. I mean, I don't know who puts their hand up and says, go ahead, unload. Right? I mean, that's like, are you a sociopath? It's persecution's not fun. And in this country, it's very light, comparatively speaking. You go to other nations where you're killed. You know? You think of those Coptic Christians getting marched out on the beach by ISIS and all beheaded with pocket knives. That was fun. You know, it's dangerous to be a Christian in some places. Here it's not as dangerous. I think it will be in 20 years, but it's not right now. But I don't know, I don't like persecution. I don't think you do either. But the fact of the matter is there's some Christians that respond to it just like the Judaizers, right? They capitulate. They forsake their biblical principles when the heat gets turned up. Next thing you know, they're affirming things the Bible is against, like homosexuality, like gay marriage, like 150 genders, whatever today's worldly nonsense is. And I'm not attacking homosexuals or gay marriage. I'm simply saying the Word of God speaks very clearly to those things, and this is the gospel that we need to preach to them. Sexual sin is sin, and it destroys just like all sin. But to avoid being persecuted, there are Christians that will capitulate on these social hot-button issues. They will. Next thing you know, they're affirming things they know the Bible is against. Why are they doing that? To avoid persecution. Instead of standing firm and and speaking the truth in love and taking the stripes and becoming more like Jesus, because He was pulverized for speaking the truth, they capitulate. And in some instances, they take it further, kind of like the Judaizers, right? They end up renouncing Christ and the cross of Christ altogether. They act like they never knew Jesus. They act like they, I've never even gone to church. I'm serious, this happens. We need to remember the words of Jesus who said, whoever denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven, Matthew ten thirty three. Those are sobering words. We don't want to get in the business of denying the word of the Lord or capitulating. We stand firm in love and we're supposed to take it. And there's a badge of honor when we take it, but there's nothing but disgrace when we won't. But I'm not saying be a jerk with the truth. Be loving and gracious and merciful and kind. That's what we're to do. So the Judaizers were not at all motivated by a sincere love for God and His law, nor were they truly concerned about the actual spiritual welfare of others. They were motivated by a desire to avoid persecution. That's all they cared about. Let's move to our third false motive, number three. The Judaizers were motivated by a desire to make others submit to laws they had no intention of keeping. (laughs) Verse 13a, Paul puts it like this, for even those who are circumcised, that's the Judaizers, do not themselves keep the law. <laughs> Man, these guys went around wanting people to keep the law of Moses while secretly not obeying it themselves. Isn't that fun? You know what we call that? Hypocrisy. That's what we call that. The religion of the circumcised Jews, was the Judaizers, was pure pretense. It was a, a sham display put on for the benefit of others. They performed the easier aspects of the law before others to create the appearance of genuine belief in what they were perpetuating while secretly disobeying the weightier matters of the law. In other words, these men preached the law of Moses and you better obey it, but they didn't practice what they were preaching. Not by any stretch of the meaning of that. They did not not practice what they preach And that's ultimately because religion was really never their goal or loving God was never their goal. Uh, They demanded that their followers do what they only pretended to do. You better obey the Mosaic dietary requirements is something that they would have said while they secretly enjoyed all of the removed menu items like lobster and crab and ham and thick cut bacon. Who can resist that? You better observe all of the Jewish religious days, months, seasons, and years while they secretly paid no attention to those things or those days, those annual events, and relaxed in the comfort of their own homes. You better get circumcised. Oh boy, you won't go to heaven. You're not a real Christian unless you do that. while the Judaizers were already circumcised, how convenient. They were hypocrites. They remind me of something our governor did not too long ago who demanded that healthy Californians stay in lockdown while he was out at the insanely expensive $350 a plate is the starting plate at the French Laundry. He's out there with constituents and lobbyists and friends and families, no mask, no concern at all, eating the most expensive food in Napa probably, while we were made to stay home, you better stay in lockdown. The the motto of the Judaezers, uh, it would have been uh, very simple. It would have been, "Do as I say, not as I do," and that's exactly what Newsom did, which almost got him recalled. In fact, I think it did get him recalled. But I don't think you can trust elections in California anymore. But in any case, I don't mean to sling hash on him. I'm just giving you an example. A very recent example of this kind of hypocrisy where you're telling people to do something in particular while you secretly have no intention of doing it. That is the Judaizers. No intention. You obey the law, and I'll make sure you do it, but I'm not going to obey it. That was them. And this is really classic cult behavior. If you know anything about cults, this is cult behavior. Cults and cult leaders, they place heavy burdens on their followers while doing whatever they want, right? That's what cult leaders do. And the Pharisees were notorious for this, just as the Judaizers were. They placed crippling religious burdens on the shoulders of the Jewish people while refusing to move a finger, Matthew 23, verse 4. And to the conscientious Jew it was unimaginably frustrating and hopeless. He found himself under the relentless demands of law upon law, tradition upon tradition, and ceremony upon ceremony. While the Pharisees were walking around in their fancy robes and their long fringes and their broad phylacteries, Matthew 23, verse 5b, they weren't having to lift a finger. At the religious feasts and in the Synagogues, the Pharisees always took the seats of honor and whenever they entered the agoras or marketplaces, they loved to be greeted with respect. Good afternoon, Rabbi, Matthew 23, 6 and 7. The Pharisees, like the Judaizers, did all their deeds in public, Matthew 23, 5a, while simultaneously neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Matthew 23, 23 What did Jesus call the Pharisees, hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, blind Pharisees? Matthew 23, 13, 16, 17, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 29. Have you ever read the seven woes in Matthew 23 when Jesus condemns the Pharisees? At the same time that He's condemning them, Paul is condemning, later on, Paul is condemning the Judaizers. They're just like them, that you don't practice what you preach. In fact, some of the Judaizers were Pharisees, Acts 15.5. I certainly hope Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea weren't part of that group. We really don't know for sure, but tradition says those two men who were Pharisees, tradition says they actually did believe in the Lord and went on to become powerful gospel ministers. The Roman Catholic Church later on venerated them as saints. And by the way, you're a saint when you believe, not when the Roman Catholic Church says so there is actually an apocryphal book called the Gospel of Nicodemus. We don't recognize that as scripture, but it was written sometime around the 4th or 5th century AD. What I'm saying is, is that we don't know if those guys stayed with the Pharisees or left. I don't think they did. I think they left. And of course, the parallel today, Christians sometimes act like the Judaizers and war Pharisees. They place high expectations and heavy standards on their children, relatives, friends, and other believers that they themselves do not obey. hmm yeah. yeah. We do this, don't we? We have a, a whole set of standards for those around us that, that we pay little to no attention to. It's the same thing, right? There's a, a great many Christians, and even I do this at times, uh, we, we do not practice what we preach, do we? We are what? Hypocrites so often. There's a great many Christians who perform all of their deeds in front of others while living secret lives of sin and neglecting the weightier matters of the law. This is a phenomenon in the church, sadly, something we need to deal with as individuals and as a church. Ultimately, the Judaizers were not motivated by a sincere love for God and His law, nor were they truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. They were motivated by a desire to make others submit to laws they had no intention of keeping. They were controlling hypocrites. That's what they were. That's what Paul says. Let's go to the fourth and final false motive. Number four, the Judaizers were motivated by a desire for bragging rights. We see this in verse 13b, Paul puts it like this, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now, is that just a weird thing to boast about? Hmm? That might get you on the sexual predator list. What a weird thing to boast about in the first century. Like, like if, if you were this Christian leader and you got uncircumcised people to get circumcised, then you went out and boasted about that. If you boasted about that to me, I would probably call law enforcement. Why are you talking about this? This is icky. This is creepy. But it was a genuine thing back then, right? Instead of boasting about how many people got saved on a Sunday morning when you preached the gospel, I'll tell you what, we had 16 baptisms and 25 circumcisions, I'm out. I'm like, where's the door? This just got weird, right? Uh, it's just, it just weird, but it was, it was a real thing for these Judaizers. Now these guys would have, like the Pharisees, they would have traveled over land and sea to win a single convert, Matthew 23, 15. They would have done just about anything to get some Gentile Christian circumcised. When the Judaizers circumcised a Gentile Christian, it's like they had won a convert which earned them the right to brag about it to their base and to the Jews in their community. And i tell you what, there's a parallel with pastors today. They, they like to brag about the decisions for Christ. They like to brag about the baptisms. They like to brag about, you know, their church attendance, right? Look at look at all these people that got saved at our church. Look at all these baptisms we performed. Look at, we had literally 3,000 people in our church this last weekend. I've been in ministry for a long time now, and these are genuine bona fide things that pastors brag about seemingly endlessly. They're always talking about this stuff. And I'm just scratching my head. Maybe I should bring up that Hey, we circumcise 18 people. Maybe that would shut him up. What did you say you did? Oh yeah. Yeah, oh well, yeah, we're into circumcision, man. While you're baptizing, we're circumcising. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce, he's tired. His hands are real tired. He, you know, I mean, seriously. Just to throw him off. But I mean, they're always brass. Sorry, Bruce. And Ann's like, I'm gonna kill him later. Kill Bruce. They're all about this stuff. If you've been in ministry for any length of time, this is is what it's about. In fact, in 2012, there's a a megachurch pastor in Texas who literally took a moment in his sermon to ridicule the baptisms of a smaller church in his community and then to brag about the baptisms in his church. He said, and this this is, I quote, last year, that church baptized only 26 people. We baptized 2,632 people. I wouldn't be able to put my head on my pillow at night if I only baptized 26 people. This is his boast. And I was yelling at the TV, we had three circumcisions. (laughs) I mean, we had some new kids and they get some, the doctor did it. And one of the one of the first things that that pastors ask me when I, you know, when I first meet new pastors, and sometimes it happens at the shepherd's conference or wherever, one of the first things they ask is, how many people do you have at RHC? This is one of the first things they ask. And I say, Zero. I have no people at RHC. Jesus has people at RHC. They belong to him. They're not my people. How many people do you have at your church? 2,914. They're your people? Oh, yeah. Wow. Now, this is one of the first things that's asked. Sometimes we we see people, you know, in the grocery store. We did this the other day, and Rachel and I, we we try to be as friendly and hospitable and kind as we can, but sometimes we see people we know that we haven't seen in a while, and then we, like, go an extra aisle over to avoid them at Target. And we do this because one of the things they're going to ask is, how is the church and how many people do you have now? And I don't want to talk about it. It's not something I'm supposed to be talking It's like I'm, like I'm like King David trying to take a census here, which was very sinful. If I were to brag about how many people we had, first of all, I don't know how you could with a group this small. But if I were to brag about the people we have, that would be like David's census, which means God is going to strike some of you down. That's what happened. There was like 12,000 Israelites that were killed when David took a census. Do you want me to take a census? Who wants to go be with the Lord? I'll, I'll, I'll just mention we have Jared and we have Bruce and we have Dennis. and I'm dead serious. It's a very annoying thing that people are always asking, hey, what's going on at your church? I mean, that's cool, you know, yeah. What's the Lord doing at your church, you know, or how many people do you have? It just, you know, just can we just, can we just talk about the weather? Or the Niners? Or the Raiders that betrayed us and left? (laughs) It's just an awkward thing. I hate talking about it. Why do pastors obsess over decisions for Christ and baptisms and Numbers? Why do they brag about these things? Why did the Judaizers do it? What has Paul been talking about in this chapter, chapter 6? Fleshly conceit, verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. It's all about pride and self-promotion, or like I said earlier, this ungodly behavior is motivated by insecurity, insecurity. And this was undoubtedly the case with that megachurch pastor I referred to. In the same sermon, he warned his people about the growing reformed movement. He said things like, stay away from it, folks. It's very, very dangerous. And this, when he said this, as well as all his boasting about his own church and Attacked the small church pastor for their, you know, 26 baptisms altogether. These things revealed his true motive, and that's fear and insecurity. He was terrified of the idea of his 1990s to 2000s seeker-sensitive style of Christianity being uprooted and replaced by something old and substantive, you know, Calvinism or the Reformed faith. That was his fear. He didn't like that he was seeing the growth in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, an expansion of sound doctrine. He didn't like that, so he laid into it in that message. And that message has been deleted a thousand times, but you can always find some guy out there that's like, I have it, (laughs) (laughs) Right? He puts it out there, and I'm like, yes, it's still out there. The Judaizers were not motivated by a sincere love for God and his law, not by any stretch of the means, nor were they concerned about the spiritual welfare of others, They were motivated by a desire for bragging rights. Bragging rights. Closing. As I said, the Judaizers claim to be the real deal, the genuine article, just as many professing Christians do today. But in verses 11 through 13, Paul peels back the thin layer of the Judaizers' piety, and he exposes their true self. These men were not Christians. These men were not even true Jews. They were hypocrites. They did not love God. They did not love God's law. They pretended to, but they didn't. They had no concern at all about the actual spiritual welfare of the Galatians or anyone else. They were driven by wrong motives a desire for admiration, a desire to avoid persecution, a desire to make others submit to laws they had zero intention of keeping, a desire for bragging rights. The sad truth is there are scores of people in churches today who are just like the Judaizers, just like them. They have the appearance of piety They claim to love God and His gospel. They seem truly concerned about the spiritual welfare of others. They go through all the motions. They give. They serve. Some of them even teach. Their outward, visible behavior seems genuinely Christian most of the time. But on the inside, they are spiritually dead, unregenerated. They are not animated by God's love, nor motivated to express a genuine love for God through obedience. They are driven by something else that is hidden deep down in the recesses of their hearts. And yet sometimes they expose their true self and motives through false teachings, through the pursuit of fleshly desires, through demonstrations of pride, through narcissism, through insecurity, through forsaking the Lord and abandoning the cross and walking away from the church when the heat of persecution is turned up. What we need to do today is is perform a self-check. Well, that's something that Paul has has admonished and exhorted and encouraged us to do multiple times in this epistle. We need to self-check and we need to ask, am I the real deal? Am I a, the genuine article? Am I a genuine, am I a real Christian in my heart? Or am I merely a Christian in name and just a pretender and a hypocrite that's just going through the motions like the Judaizers? If we have experienced regeneration and conversion through the Holy Spirit, we have been born again. We have been born from above, born of God, and we are now new creations with new desires and new motives. The old has passed away and the new has come. John 3, 3, Ephesians 2, 5, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Ask yourself, am I new? Am I a new creation from the inside out? Do I have a new love for God? Do I have new desires for God? Am I motivated by God's love for me? That's what drives me to do what I do. Am I new? Or am I merely pretending to be new? That is the million-dollar question this morning. If we find that we have been pretending, there is still good news for us. Jesus shed His blood and died on the cross to pay for pretenders, to pay for hypocrites, to purchase for himself hypocrites. This is great news. Just because you're a hypocrite doesn't mean that you can't be cleansed by the blood of Jesus and redeemed and saved and made new. Trust in Him and be forgiven of your sins, even the sin of hypocrisy and faking it. Be cleansed of your unrighteousness, be reconciled, to God through the blood of Christ. You need to understand something, that pretenders do not enter heaven. They don't go to heaven. Pretenders do not enter into the kingdom of Christ. They don't. Heaven and the kingdom of Christ, they do not belong to the fakes and to the pretenders and to the Judaizers and to the Pharisees. Those places do not belong to the fakes. And yet any hypocrite who repents of his sin or her sin and trusts in Christ is cleansed and washed and they do go to heaven. They do enter the kingdom of Christ. That's good news. That's the best news.